to do more with with limited resources to make more um, happen and it could really end up uh, boomeranging on us and and leading to a kind of despondency. And I think it has for, for a lot of congregations that the more they've tried to race into change and expend more energy, um, the more depleted they've become. And they almost become too fatigued to be church, too exhausted to be, to be church. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Trump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Andrew Root. He's a professor of youth and family ministry at Luther Seminary, as well as the critically acclaimed author of The Relational Pastor. Dr. Root, thank you for joining the conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Uh, well, uh, we haven't talked in a, in a while. We had you at Church Works a couple of years ago for CBF. Um, and then in pandemic years, it's been probably 20 years then. So um, <laughs> how, how have things been with you, you know, at, at this point in the pandemic? My gosh, that totally feels exactly right. Like one pandemic year equals 20 regular years or something like that. It's uh, it's even like double or triple dog years, I think. So uh, yeah, man, I feel it. I feel, I feel like these 18 months have been exhausting. Um, thankful, you know, could be, could be a lot worse and um, have made it through here and family's been healthy and all that stuff, but it's been uh it's been exhausting. I, I really am a, a pretty severe introvert. So I thought I was built for quarantine. Like I had been working on this since I was, you know, nine years old, watching hours and hours of TV in my basement. I thought that this was all for that purpose, but 
after a few weeks, it, it had been exhausting. And uh, so I'm happy to be out of my basement in some ways. But uh, yeah, it uh, feels like a long time since I was with you guys. And it, I had a really great time um, back when I did 40 years ago or whatever it was now through the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be nice if all the institutions we work for, you know, immediately gave us a raise for for that amount of time for uh, for the pandemic. But um, right, yeah, you should get twenty years more, you know, years served because you went through the pandemic. You're tenured, by the way, now as a result of, of this <laughs> process. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're you're somewhere where your pay scale goes up, that'd be pretty nice. So you know. Um, how has theological education changed for y'all as a result of this this pandemic? Are there you know aspects of what you y'all are thinking uh, that that you've shifted on? Yeah, well, at least here at, at Luther Seminary, I mean, I, I think um, a few things have changed. I mean, one, everything changed obviously, and and all of our classes went on Zoom, and um, we had to transition really quickly. So there there's some kind of sense like, wow, we could we did that really quickly, and that was great. And, um, but I think on the other side of that, you know, realizing that you can really do a lot of things through Zoom and there are other modalities to teach in, I think overall for us, there's also the realization that we would not want to become a fully online school like that, that was not life giving to students and to faculty. So it's interesting that I think the pandemic kind of, uh, you know, there's always worries or there's always kind of talk of could, could you just become a fully online school? Um, you know, would that, that would obviously be cheaper. Would that be the way to go? And I think for at least us and our faculty coming out of, out of the pandemic and even our board in um, our administration is like, no, we will never be a fully online school. We'll probably be doing more stuff online and we obviously are gonna be using Zoom in, in new ways and, and some of the other pedagogical tricks we learned to just survive will we'll continue to kind of fuel the way we go forward. But um, the importance of persons in a room, I think was highlighted of how, how significant that is for, for at least for us, for kind of pastoral education and um, just thinking about ministry and things like that, so. Well, you were obviously busy in the pandemic because um, you released three books. I mean, not one, not two, three. Uh, so you had this uh, series come out, The Congregation in the Secular Age, The Pastor in the Secular Age, and Faith Formation in the Secular Age. I guess the first and most important question is, are you trying to bypass John Calvin with the number of volumes to a single work? Well, first of all, there's no way to uh, pass Calvin in anything. And it actually, you know, Bart's got Calvin. So like 13 volumes is, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty intense. So yeah, all of them did come out during the pandemic. So there's two that that came out, um, uh, I guess, in, in the, in the bracket of the pandemic. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man, there it's, uh, it was supposed to be three volumes, it's now going to go to four, but uh, oh, I, I, I will ask for psychological help from your, from your, your viewers if it starts moving towards 10 or you know 13 like Bart so then I will then I will uh really need some some intervention yeah well uh you know I bought the three packs so I kind of feel like <laughs> there should have been a coupon in there for for the fourth one I know I've had people who have said that like what I I agreed to have three and now you're gonna throw a fourth one but it's not really gonna be four that's what I'm trying to tell people it's this sounds like totally arrogant I don't mean this to sound arrogant but it's kind of like um 
Rogue One as it's related to the other, you know, like nine Star Wars movies. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's in the same universe. It's it's still it's part of the Ministry in a Secular Age series, but it's not really Volume Four. So, um, yeah, you don't you don't have to you don't have to feel bad, but you should. Okay, so, uh, I, so I, since we went there, you know, it was like okay, nothing was ever going to top Empire Strikes Back, but then they released Rogue One, and it's right there with Empire for me as, as yeah. the greatest of all the Star Wars sagas. So what I hear you saying is that we bought three, but then there's this other, you know, amazing resource yes. that's out there. Right. That's, that's better than the rest possibly, but not included <laughs> in, in, in the, the trilogy. Um, yes. That's kind of how it is. I don't know if I can say it's awesome um, that I will leave that up to readers, but it is kind of like rogue one and that it is, connected to the universe um but is yes it's not in the in the trilogy i guess i don't know man i'm starting to feel embarrassed even talking like this um <laughs> i would i would be happy if it was like you know as good as space balls let alone a star wars you know what i mean so <laughs> now for the rest of the interview i'm gonna have space balls quotes just flashing you know in my mind so well, you have um, to be kind of old too to to know the Spaceballs reference, you know. So uh, we'll we'll just leave it to the old schoolers to get that one. All right, so let's set the context for these books by having you define what you mean by the secular age. Yeah, I mean it's a really important question because I think I think we all feel something of the secular age, and when we when we're in church conversations, whether it's at the denominational level or whether it's within our local congregations or, you know, it's, it's, it's part of our seminary or something like that. It's really easy to say what's impacting us right now is the secular. And it's, it's the fact of secularity is, is the big thing impacting us. But the truth is, is that when you, you kind of get under the surface of that, almost no one really knows what they mean by that. Or if they do, we start to realize pretty quickly with people in the room that, that people have operative different definitions of what they mean by the secular. So um, I'm basically taking, in, you know, the ground broken here from, from my perspective and in an in amazing way is Charles Taylor. So I'm really drawing on his definition in his really big, thick book that if, if it falls on your head, it will concuss you severely, um, a book called The Secular Age. And I do not recommend anyone throw that book around. Um, but it's a, uh, so I'm, I'm really following his lead here. And that is to say that um, what it means to live in a secular age is not necessarily that fewer and fewer people are going to church, which is how we usually kind of define it. And it seems to be kind of at the heart of our existential crisis as it's related to the church. It's like, oh man, fewer and fewer people are coming. Therefore, we're going to have a harder time buying health insurance. Our, our seminaries are going to be weaker. Our other you know, institutional structures, publishing houses, things like that are going to be, are going to be impacted. We usually do kind of think that it's uh, to, to encounter the secular is to have fewer and fewer people really invested at our institutional levels. Um, but what Taylor wants to argue is that's not really what it means to live in a secular age. Rather, what it means to live in this kind of secular age that he wants to define is not an age really where there isn't even belief, where there actually becomes an escalation of different beliefs and different spiritualities at play. So it's not as even if the, the world becomes flatter in the sense of um, people not searching for spirituality or searching for meaning. But what he thinks happens is that um, belief, whatever kind of belief we have, whether it's even a belief not to believe anything, becomes fragilized. Um, and that we're dealing all the time around every corner 
with our beliefs that we hold to being contested and being really aware that there are neighbors and others in our lives, family members who, who don't believe like we believe and some of them seem to be living pretty good lives. And so he wants to say that this kind of secular age is to enter into an environment where all belief becomes fragilized. Whether you are a committed believer, um, you'll find yourself thrust into doubt and wonder, well, is this really true? Or is this just the family I grew up in? Or do, do I really believe this? Or if I would have you know, been born in another part of the world at another time, would I believe this? Or is this, you know, it's all religion is all it is, is, you know, false pattern recognition. Is this just an evolutionary trick? He says, if you're, if you're someone who believes, you can't help but be thrust into those questions at times, into those doubts. But he thinks it works it the other way as well. So it's a kind of double fragilization, where if you're someone who doesn't believe, you know, you, you are in a band in Austin and trying to start up an app and, you know, another a tech startup, and you know what religion is, it's just, you know, it's just a historical reality that's used by powerful people to keep other people down. And there's no, there's no God and there's nothing that happens after, after you die that when you die, it's like turning off the TV set. It just goes, it just goes blank. That's what happens to you after you, you die. That's your belief system. Your belief system is you don't believe anything. Taylor's point is for even people in that reality, in this kind of secular age, they can't help at times finding that belief fragilized and they find themselves believing at times, like when they hold their child for the first time or when they hear a beautiful uh, Christmas Bach concert or something, or when they have to bury their mother, like these realities seem to even puncture and thrust them into a fragilization where their unbelief, they find themselves believing for a time. So that's really where the, the, the series rests is trying to think about, okay, if this is the environment we live in, how do we do ministry? And yet there is a big challenge, I think, that Taylor would say for those of us who are doing ministry is that the kind of default mechanism that we inherit in this kind of a secular age that allows for all these, uh, these different beliefs and these different kind of spiritualities is that we do kind of inherit this default system of imminence where we live in what he calls an imminent frame where it becomes much harder for people. It's harder for our imaginations to get to this reality that there's a living speaking God who moves through history, that just becomes harder and harder for people to, to believe. So the pastor doing ministry, the youth worker doing ministry um, has to kind of confront this, this reality of, of trying to think about how to be faithful and how to lead a church and how to lead a community of people inside this kind of imminent frame where belief becomes fragilized and the default mechanism is more towards um, natural and material things as, a, as opposed to kind of transcendent things. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean. That's a mouthful, isn't it, Andy? It is, but going back to something you said earlier, just to, to be clear, so Taylor's book's more of kind of like a, a bludgeon weapon and yours is more like throwing stars because there's so many to, to <laughs> yeah. I, I think that I think that's true. Yeah. Um, though I would say Taylor's is just, you know, yes, it's, it can bludgeon you, but it's, uh, it's quite beautiful if you can get to it. I, I, you know, it is almost 800 pages and to just make your viewers even a little bit more nauseous. It, I really do think it takes three times reading through it before you kind of get it. So it, it will, it will kill you in one way or another, even it will, it'll kill your schedule or um, it will it will break you open with amazement and, uh, you know, kill you with goodness too. So, um, yes, <laughs> I don't know if mine's a throwing star, but it's easier to throw. I'll, I'll just go that far. 
All right, so let's let's unpack these, starting with uh, the congregation. You wrote, being too fatigued to be the church is a challenge. Its most popular solution is change. Perhaps change is needed, but the pursuit of change, the need to recast an identity, runs the ever-present risk of producing depression. Give us a, a little more insight into the depressed church before the pandemic. Yeah, right. And it will be really fascinating after the pandemic, what, what happens. And my, my bet is these same realities are even going to be um, going to be deeper for us and even more existential for us. But, you know, we're in an interesting place here in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years. Um, for those of us who've been around a little bit within denominational structures and, and um, just within kind of Protestant realities, I mean, there was a time where we would have debates whether anything needed to change at all, you know, and, and some people, there was always a, a kind of faction at any, any discussion where it was like, no, no, we don't want things to change. Nothing should change. And, and I think what's kind of fascinating now, at least within the communities that, that I spend time in, everyone agrees now that things need to change. Like there's no one who, well, there may be a few on the side, but there are very few people now who, who think like the status quo is good enough and we just need to kind of keep things as they are. But I think what's fascinating, at least again, inside of my experience has been that now that everyone agrees there needs to be change, ironically, it feels like no one knows what that change should be, or it's really hard to, to kind of mobilize any creativity for that change. I mean, obviously we can, we can see outliers to this, but there's a lot of exhaustion around that. So one of the things I wanted to explore in, the, in, this, in the congregation of secular age was to move with Taylor but also then um, I got into conversation with this German social theorist named Hartmann Rosa, who's written some really interesting books and articles just about how modern life is really an accelerating life, how things just keep going faster. And it, this is just a continued process of what it means to be modern is that our world just kind of keeps speeding up, both technologically, social change, that social changes seem to, in social norms, seem to be shifting more quickly. And then just the pace of our lives feels like it just keeps going faster and faster. And that will be one of the interesting kind of postmortems whenever the pandemic is over or has changed enough and, and is in our rearview mirror enough to think about is how this kind of demanded slowdown inside of a really accelerated age led a lot of people to be in deep forms of anxiety. But one of the things that uh, these thinkers are, are looking at is particularly how inside of this continued movement towards acceleration and going faster and faster that the ailment that really pops up in late modernity that affects a lot of people, and I'm trying to say affects institutions like the church as well, is that uh, that you can find that there's been this rise of, of depression, that depression has become a, an issue that affects most, if not all of us, at least our family member or something, and that this becomes a really kind of prime reality inside of late modernity. And there's a, there's a Parisian thinker named um, Alan Ernberg, who wrote a book called The Weariness of the Self, which is a kind of classic text, particularly in, in kind of European social theory, which his name doesn't sound very Parisian to me, but um, he is from Paris. And uh, this book makes the argument, it's a kind of genealogy, it's trying to trace um, the rise of, uh, of Prozac, really, and, and, and how Prozac kind of came to be. And so it ends up being a genealogy of depression. And he really shows that since the 1970s, we've had this 
incredible um, uptick in in in, de in depression, where before the issues were more hysteria um, was was more of an issue we faced in, in kind of mid modernity, but in late modernity it becomes depression. And he makes the argument that he thinks depression actually is a ramifications of the necessity to continue to have to change your identity, to have to keep up, to kind of have to keep curating your own self and, and keep going at a faster and faster pace. So the demand of continued change and the kind of open avenues that you can change as much as you want, you can become this and you can become that. And actually you have to keep performing yourself over and over again. When you run out of energy to do that, when you run out of energy and wonder if you're really able to kind of keep up, that it can impose a, a despondency um, on you, um, that this kind of necessity to kind of keep up. And, and I've, I've heard, I've kind of uh, been, been listening in through kind of online forums and stuff of life coaches through the pandemic. And it's amazing how a lot of what I've seen in my just limited, and this is a very limited research of how life coaches have been doing their work through the pandemic is there's been a lot of reassurance. And one of the, the, the mantras that they often use is to tell the people who they're coaching that no one is doing well right now like inside this pandemic, no one is doing well, because that reassurance is to this person who feels like they're just not performing well enough, that they're not actually performing the self with enough kind of creativity and energy to really be the kind of self they want to be, but somehow to be told that other people aren't doing well also gives you a little bit of relief, but it only does so because there is this sense that you're in this constant competition to be presenting and receiving recognition for this self that is, you know, taking the world in some way, and it and it is uh, is is creative in in some kind of capacity. So in the book, I try to to draw this into the church, and have had a lot of pastors um, talk to me about how everyone in their congregation really wants to change. But as soon as the change means everyone's gonna got to do a little bit more, or that busy people actually going to have to give. A little, a little more time that all of a sudden um, all that energy for change turns into a kind of despondency. And I've had a few pastors tell me in different situations that the biggest problem they face in their congregations is that they just feel like their churches are depressed, like not the individuals personally in it necessarily, but as a whole kind of collective, there just doesn't seem to be the energy to make the change that they need to. And I just, I, I think that is a warning call to consultants and um, people like me who go into churches and, you know, try to help them think about the future to, can, to continue to kind of be beating this drum that you have to change, you have to change, you have to change, could lead to this kind of fatigue, this, this weariness um, um, of the self, which the direct French translation of that title is the, um, to, uh, the fatigue of being yourself, which seems really kind of insightful. And I think for us, there is the possibility here as we confront these, these challenges of, of our secular age. And if we do misdiagnose our issue as a secular, as what Taylor would call a secular two issue, where it's that fewer and fewer people are going to church and we need to solve that. The problem with seeing it just that way is it, it asks us to try to get more with less, to do more with, with limited resources, to make more um, happen. And it could really end up uh, boomeranging on us and, and leading to a kind of despondency. And I think it has for, for a lot of congregations that the more they tried to race into change and expend more energy, um, the more depleted they've become and they almost become too fatigued to be church, too exhausted to be, to be church. 
We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Listen in to a conversation with Robert P. Jones, author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and Dr. Lewis Brogdon, Executive Director of BSK's Institute for Black Church Studies, entitled America's Racial Reckoning and the Crisis of White Christianity. Visit institute.bsk.edu backslash Jones 2021 for recording of this important conversation starting October 18th. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. I drink the Edwin Freeman Kool-Aid, um, his, his Magnus Opus, uh, um, which book called Failure of Nerve is, he talks mm. about uh, chronic anxiety within an organization. And ultimately his argument is that ang- uh, conflict um, typically heightens uh, the already um, unhealthy anxiety or ways of dealing with anxiety within organizations. So I imagine for a lot of unhealthy congregations, uh, this pandemic has just uh, been awful, you know, mm-hmm. awful in, in ways that they, they can't imagine. And he goes into the characteristics or the typical ways that, that um, chronically anxious organizations tend to handle uh, conflict and, and change. But, you know, so for many congregations, they have felt like they were, running out of time to make a a positive change before the pandemic. And now that time has sped up on this global altering experience, um, it's hard to imagine how they're dealing with it. And you write about time. You write about the busyness of our culture and our churches, the pressure that comes with time. But you also talk about time as a construct of existence. Um, The church and its members have become active participants in replacing sacred time with secular time you've argued what do you mean by that yeah and i think this is one of the dynamics of of the secular age is um if part of the modern project is to continue to kind of speed up um speed up time or yeah you know just speed up our ways of life and and it really starts with at its core as as rosa says so beautifully it's the speeding up of production and it's the speeding up of communication and it's the speeding up of transportation like it's that's been the drive for the last you know 300 400 years is to continue to speed those those things up and we tend to see that as a as a is a pretty um, I'm kind of unthought good. Like it's good that things are going faster when it comes to production and, and transportation and communication like that. That's good. I think we're actually coming to grips right now, like just in the last few weeks 
or at least it's, it's come to the fore even more so that is the continuing speeding up of communication through something like Facebook actually good, you know, like is it, it can democracy really happen when there's that much speeding up um, where communication can just happen so fluidly like that, that we can never even agree on things and, and um, misinformation about, about vaccines and elections can just go everywhere. You know, we're starting to have to deal with that, that kind of reality. And it's the same with production as well. Like, um, our means of, of producing more and more faster and faster that all seemed to work really well until um and the earth was able to absorb the carbon pretty easily um for most of that until all of a sudden it goes faster and faster and more and more and now we have this issue where we have um you know uh, climate change happening and the issue isn't that the earth can't handle the carbon it, it, the issue is it can't handle it this fast that that the production is going so fast and we're putting so much carbon into the atmosphere that there's not enough time for the earth to be able to to deal with it so we're, we're we do kind of feel this existential sense that we're, we're coming to the cusp of some pretty pretty big realities and we do know that just as finite human beings that we can't just continue to speed up everything and anxiety as you just mentioned andy is a, is a good example like how much can human consciousness just have to go faster and faster and faster and we you know the airport is an incredibly anxious place for a lot of people because you just are feeling like you have to you have to catch up you have to go faster you have to make sure you get get somewhere and then you are going to accelerate across space really really quickly so that whole move of speeding up production and speeding up um, um uh, production and communication and um and um, what's the third one? Production, communication, and travel is that um, that to do that you have to extract, and I think this happens at the beginning of, of the modern project. You have to extract the sacredness out of time. You have to hollow out time so that it can continue to be accelerated, and that is, I think, part of what we've inherited here is that we've we've kind of taken out of time. We've made time really just a commodity that we can speed up, that we can use, that we can, um, that, that we can kind of uh, uh, shape for ourselves. And we've lost this kind of sacredness of, of time. And so that becomes a huge challenge. And in my experience is that most pastors and leaders in, in Protestant ministries kind of feel like if there's any hope, it's going to, they're going to have to take on the practices of speeding up time more um, and not try to kind of return to a, a deep sense of, of the sacredness of time and how time gets infused with a kind of sacred category or how a, a, a sacred reality. And so um, that's kind of where I'm trying to go is, is to think about, well, what what actually infuses time with its its deep significance, and um, and how do we avoid in kind of pastoral ministry um, or in all the leadership we do within the church of of furthering taking on these practices of hollow, hollowing out time so it can go faster and it can become a commodity um, that we use. So I'm going to be honest, I, I'm worried about the future of the local church as we know it. You know, I think some are naive to this fact because they have either experienced transitional growth, you know, people leaving one church to go to another, or they have successfully financially endowed their church budget that decline hasn't become a reality and maybe won't become a reality for decades. But it's not just, you know, mourning the beauty that is the local church, the, the vocational expression that I live out each day or the institution itself yet it is all these things, but it's also the limitations of our minds to shift into a new understanding of what thriving and efficacy looks like. 
So how do we mentally shift our understanding um, of what thriving and efficacy looks like in this very unfamiliar future for the church? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think part of the issue is it's really um, potentially against the backdrop of this uh, kind of addiction towards acceleration doesn't feel very doesn't feel very sexy. But I do think if the issue, you know, to kind of step back and if the issue is the kind of loss of transcendence, the fragilization of, of belief, then I think a, a kind of way forward inside of this is um, to help to, to make to make sure we're clear on what the crisis is. And I just feel like overall, we feel like the crisis, the kind of existential crisis that exists in the pit of our stomach that keeps us awake at night, that wakes the pastor up in the middle of the night looking at the ceiling really is, do you have enough resources to survive? And how are you going to keep those resources? Or how are you going to get more of those resources to survive? And I don't want to minimize that. I mean, those are some legit fears. And we are in you know, if dare we say like a depressed market right now. But I think the more we focus on that as the crisis, the more we do get kind of enamored with that false kind of form of of the secular problem, which is that we just got to get more people to come. And I, I, instead, I think the crisis has to be that um, the the crisis is how do we speak again? How do we witness to, again, a God who moves within the world? Um, how do we how do we face the crisis of the fact that this God who is God actually moves within even a modern world? And how do we point to that? And how do we help people journey into that? And I do think it takes on teaching people, spending time in thinking about prayer as a central dynamic, thinking about um, the, the how our our communities are constituted in the sense of their relationships, um, and that the the core of a community really in the, the core leadership of a community needs to tend to those relationships and not those rela- relationships as instruments. Like if we have really good relationships at this church, then more people are going to come, but just how the relationships themselves testify to a deep sense of living well before the, the presence of God, or, or even how the relationships become the concrete place where we encounter the living God. Um, those you know, so tending to the relationships of the community, this is what Rosa calls resonance. This, his, his point is there's this form of action that is just do more, get more, look at how much decline and try to, and try to find more creativity to upend that decline. And yet that just alienates us further from our lives and alienates pastors further from their vocations. But he wants to say there's another form of action that often comes to us as a, as a kind of gift or even event that, that surprises us that we can't really control. But there are times that we really feel connected to something bigger than us, connected to something truly other than us. And I think that the, the, the pastor, the leader, having that kind of disposition, that really what you want to lead your community into are these deep experiences of connection to one another and this yearning to connect to God and the kind of crisis of how do you help a community in late modernity connect to a living God who still speaks and moves is, um, is really worth wrestling with. And I, and I wonder if that shouldn't be that kind of what keeps us up at night is how do we help people really come to discern and have a vision for how God acts and moves in their lives and how our communities come to testify and tell those stories of those experiences of God's presence and God's arrival in their lives. Um, as opposed to just thinking like, how can we become more relevant so we can get more resources so we can keep the doors open. And I know it becomes really hard when it feels like 
we are just dealing with all sorts of losses. But um, I do think this may be a moment to try to focus again on how we how we point to the, the living presence of God in our lives and how we give people imagination for that and how we as a community, and again, never outside of, of doubt, how we walk into that and, and try to journey into um, what it would mean and what it would be like to live in a way that we think that this God of the Bible still acts and moves even in a late modern world and how we would even go about discerning that. So these are existential challenges and questions the local church is facing and, and not at the center, but close to it are vocational pastors. And you wrote leading a congregation is so difficult because the pastor not only has her own identity crisis to face, but also needs to answer the question, how do I be a pastor when transcendence and divine action are doubted by me as well as by my people? But before she can help her people discern the living, speaking God, she must find a way to connect her people to the world itself, rescuing them from the alienation of accelerated modernity. Take mm -hmm. us a little deeper there. Yeah, I mean, I do think that this is part of the issue for a lot of uh, kind of mainline pastors is that um, sometimes like one of the one of the concepts Taylor uses is, is disenchantment. So he's, he's taking that from from Max Weber, this sense of how kind of magic leaves the world. And part of, at least if you follow Weber, who is contested, and then Taylor's use of Max Weber is the, the, the ways that the, the modern world takes the magic out of the world. And there's certain ways that the magic returns, like it returns in Disney movies or in Disney world, and it returns in you know, concerts and it returns in certain forms of consumerism and it returns in some kind of deep, ideological passion for your political party, but the overall sense that there's still a kind of transcendent magic in the world um, seems to kind of get extracted out. And I think it particularly gets extracted out of kind of mainline Christian communities, or maybe even maybe even the, just the Protestant church in general. And then there's some ways that that's a good thing, like even theologians in the medieval period were really worried about local local people and local congregations assuming say taking communion and taking the host into their mouth was a magical thing they wanted to make be really clear that that's not what was going on but people really did believe that they were participating in the real presence of, of jesus christ when they when they took communion and i think for a lot of pastors um and people in ministry were almost as disenchanted uh, even more so we're even more disenchanted than people in our churches often and you have to deal with that kind of existential crisis of you i don't know one of the ways i've said it is that sometimes being a, a mainline pastor right now can feel a little bit like you're an employee at the renaissance festival you know like everyone's happy you're there and happy that the renaissance festival is happening and a few times of the year they're really really excited you're there like christmas and easter to do your thing but for most of the rest of the year they're not really sure what you're doing and i think sometimes pastors feel that more existentially um and you know my point is if you were being a pastor in the medieval period you would never be kind of rendered and, and hit with a kind of malaise of like what's the point of what i'm doing um, because you simply giving the Eucharist was an incredibly profound enchanted reality because there were relics in the world that were imbued with divine reality. But now we live on such the backside of that, that sometimes as a pastor, you can feel 
like, my gosh, I, what am I doing here? And why do I not just run a nonprofit? And what is the difference between the church and, and um, a nonprofit that seems to maybe even be at least with less, less weirdness uh, doing better things in the world? And, and we have to kind of bear that, that reality. So again, my point is that without a kind of deep sense that the pastoral identity is about again never outside this contested fragilization but is trying to really point to and lean into the possibility of a living speaking god in the world then it becomes really hard to hold on to i don't know hold on to your vocational identity i think you know before the pandemic I I felt like it was a, a regular occurrence that ministry colleagues of mine were, were calling it quits, um, you know, moving on to a different field of work. And now at this point in the pandemic, it feels like a weekly occurrence. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the weight of expectations and burden of the church, um, you know, the church decline crucified a lot of pastors that are um, highly emotional, intelligent enough to self-differentiate. Um, but they felt alone. Um, they felt like the pastoral care aspect of who they are wasn't there. They also felt like they were asked to do a lot more um, with people doing less. Um, you know, so are, are, are clergy abandoning ship? You know, is that is that a sign of, of what's to come? Or, or do we, do you anticipate, you know, a, a new form of ministry in, in this coming chapter? Yeah, well, I mean, this maybe sounds a little bit too idealistic, but I do believe that we do have to remember that God is that God has to take responsibility for God's church. And that doesn't mean it. What, what I don't mean is that we don't have to do anything or we don't have to be concerned or we don't have to really be stewards of this. But I do want us to remember that um, ultimately this the, this church is the body of Christ. And therefore, I think it's easy for us to catastrophize like, oh, my gosh, if we don't get our crap together that the church is going to disappear forever. And there may be some real ramifications if we, you know, don't get things together or we take some wrong steps here, but I do want us to remind us that God still is God and this still is the body of Christ. So to not catastrophize that, but at the same time for a lot of individual pastors, like you said, Andy, it has been a horrific um, and catastrophizing is not anywhere near. It has just been an awful, awful time and i do worry that we're we're going to have more of that as we as we start to to open up and move out of this pandemic because i think you said it really really right that all of a sudden as a pastor that you had to do more than you ever had to do and i think there is a kind of expectation now that we're going to make up for lost time so if you already were accelerating too fast and you already were trying to chase down resources now there's going to be this temptation to do more um, and to do better. And there's going to be more so looking at other pastors and whatever kind of group or ju judicatory you're in, whether, you know, whatever that might be, um, your network or, or your synod or whatever, looking around at those and thinking like, oh man, oh, there's the stars. And I have to somehow become like them. I have, I have to be as I have to turn my church into a star, just like, like those churches, or I'm going to lose everything. And, and, and people aren't even going to show up anymore. And it is a huge fear. Like the fact that we've, broken routine with a lot of people by you know seeing their services services going on the youtube or whatever that you do wonder is it are people going to come back and then you add on top of that that zoom itself uh, you know having 
taught a ton on Zoom, I just find that you get none of the, Zoom is like all the stuff of meetings, all the kind of crappy parts of meetings without any of the, the, the real human to human spirit that makes being together really important. And so, like you said, like no pastoral care conversations where pastors were doing all these operations of ministry without any of the personhood and the personhood I would guess is what pulled a lot of them into ministry, led there to their call to ministry, but also is what gave them life. And so we really are going to have to think coming out of this. And I think I would really encourage any, any pastors to really think about what really does give you life in the context of ministry and what the church needs more than resources is it needs life. And I think the point of, of Rose's work and, and Taylor's work is in some ways the, the, the pursuits of what is successful in modernity doesn't always produce life. It can actually produce the opposite. It can lead to a ton of burnout and carnage in, in the midst of it. And I think we're experiencing that um, for a lot of pastors right now. So um, who I think it's just important individually. And then for those of us who really care for the vocation of the pastor and the minister to kind of think about theologically what brings life and then what brings life to you um, as a person in ministry as well and I don't mean that in any way kind of consumeristically or individualistically but mean it in a, in a deep sense of kind of really being connected to um, to the world around us and to the world God's in ministry to around us and then to the very otherness of God I think one of the sections that that spoke to me personally and vocationally um, was when you were using the story of um, going into the wilderness and, and Hagar, um, you know, and, and I think about uh, for a lot of ministers, for a lot of congregations that recognize and are trying to capitalize on this unique moment and the church's existence to, um, to seek out a different way. Um, you know, in the volume of pastoring, you talk about ministry in the secular age is seeker sensitive, but the kind of seeker sensitive that perceives divine action. Um, I love how you're, it proclaims God, not us as the seeker. It sees seeking as the shape of divine action, not as a marketing strategy to go after those that haven't found God. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah. I mean, this is um, the other thing that Taylor, I think is really helpful on that, that I've, I've hoped to kind of expand and at least put in the lap of, of people in ministry is that he thinks inside of this kind of secular age, there is a way to live where you just, what he calls spin things closed, where they're just, you, you just keep sucking the mystery um, out of, out of life. And you just uh, presume that there's nothing beyond what you're experiencing and there's nothing beyond the, the natural and, and, and material. But he also thinks that inside this kind of world, there is still a way to seek for God. There still is a way to kind of recover a sense of transcendence within the world. And that's to be open, just to have this kind of open sense of, um, of, 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 of going into the world, seeking for these kind of, these kind of resonant experiences, like I said, 
But uh, that does mean that we have to make a transition. And he uses Robert uh, Wuthno, the, the Princeton sociologist for this, and says that we get way too concerned about dwelling. Like, how do we get people to dwell in our church? How do we get them to dwell in this church, our church, instead of the church across the street? And, and how do we just make sure that our, our numbers are, are where they need to be? And he thinks the invitation in, 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 inside of this period is to become seekers who, who, who are who are pilgrims on a journey and so um at the end of that blue book one of the one of the um stories that i i drawn is from eugene peterson's memoir where he talks about this huge trans transition he had in his own ministry where he really thought his his job was to solve people's problems and to give them the kind of expertise they needed um that won their participation like you come because of the services provided here by the pastor and he really had a, a difficult experience realizing that's not what he was supposed to do at all and in kind of a a, a pastoral moment of of counseling with a, a woman who was in um in the hospital who he tried to fix her and and give her the the services she needed and it was very clear that that wasn't what was helpful and he had another chance after she left the hospital to go visit her and instead of delivering her all the resources she could use to get better and to kind of participating in being the helping profession he thought he should have been, he simply asked her what she needed and in a real way invited her into a kind of disposition of seeking and being a pilgrim. And she said to him that what she really wanted and what he thinks most people really want from their pastor is she really wanted to be taught how to pray. She said, would you teach me how to pray? And I think this becomes, I wonder, I mean, it seems so simplistic, but I'm, I, I'm trying to imagine that what if this was a real pastoral task inside this time? And I mean, think about this coming out of the pandemic where people are like, okay, now you're going to have to do two services in two different modalities, one for the few people that are still online, the other for these people. And we're going to have to add another service now for a while, because still in our, our county, we have to do social distancing and, and you're just going to have to do more and why are there no kids in the youth group? We have to get more people there. And, and we, last year we weren't, weren't able to do this event and this program. So let's try to do it. Let's try to do two of them this year. I mean, all that stuff can be so overwhelming. Um, but I wonder if we went into, into our ministries and just thought our real objective here is to teach people to pray. Um, if that wouldn't change things. And if that wouldn't actually be the most faithful response to this kind of secular age is to invite people to be the kind of pilgrims that go out into their world in a kind of open way of trying to discern how God is acting and moving um, and to come back and to tell those stories and for those stories to become our prayers and then for us to pray those stories um, may be a beautiful way to kind of lean into this. I mean, there are a ton of really painful um, and yet I think beautiful stories of how people have lived through this time. And my fear is that kind of coming back to something like normal, we just think let's make up for lost time as opposed to let's really attend to each other's humanity. And let's really, um, let's really make sense of what even happened to us. And where was God in the midst of, of this pandemic and these losses and these political infights and this craziness that happened in our country? And how do we make sense of that? And, and how do we learn to pray in the midst of this? And so it seems really simplistic and, and again, not very Silicon Valley cool, but I wonder if Eugene Peterson hasn't helped us in telling us that the pastors and the minister's primary task is to, is to teach people to pray. So besides trying to give 
Taylor credit for all the brilliant writing that you did. And besides trying to out volume Bart uh, with releasing several different, uh, you know, more volumes of this, I guess, if you will. Uh, what, what do you hope for your readers? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, you make me really embarrassed uh, that, that you know, there's no uh, there's no outdoing Taylor and surely no outdoing Bart. So I'm not. Well, I've just been sitting here. You, you keep giving Taylor credit throughout this thing. I was like, <laughs> yeah, but you you wrote this, Andrew. Taylor wrote his own thing. You wrote this. But, you know, you go ahead. Sorry, you're the guest. Don't let me interrupt. <laughs> well, what I really hope for here coming out of this whole series and I'll, I'll just own this Andy is is I think the contribution that I've tried to make um, that's maybe unique to my own voice is to really remind all of us within the church but particularly those who are you know ministers pastors that that ministry itself is a profound reality that it is a really profound reality and try to remind us that God's own being is one of ministry, that God's action in the world is the ministry of action, and God's, God's action reveals God's being, and so that God is a minister, and so to be called into ministry is to participate in something incredibly profound. It is to kind of take the very actions of God, which bring us into the being of God, and so ministry is just too beautiful and too profound to just turn it into accelerated action to win resources, that it is a deeply mystical reality. It is a reality that exists in, in, in the realm of gift and promise. And um, it's, a, it's a quite beautiful thing. So my biggest hope for the reader is that, um, that you would recognize how significant what you do in ministry is. I know right now in, inside of this kind of secular age, it feels like quite a pathetic, quite a weak, um, quite a, 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 a flat kind of form of human action, like, you know, being a lawyer or a doctor or um, a celebrity, for God's sakes, which seems like it would be a much more powerful thing to be or a, a political leader or something. But I do want to make an argument that even in this always kind of backward way where it appears weak, ministry may be the most powerful human form of action we have always remaining in kind of the foolishness of you know Paul's foolishness in Corinthians it always seems weak but it may be the most powerful reality because only ministry participates in death for the sake of life and uh, this is who this God is this is this God as Robert Jensen said whoever this God is is God is the one who frees Israel from Egypt and raises Jesus from the dead that God is the one who arrives ministering new life out of death and uh those of us who are in ministry in one way or another are participating in that reality and yearning for that reality. And uh, our, our, our ministry becomes a participation in the, in the larger ministry of God who enters into what is dead and brings life out of it. So I ultimately hope the reader can kind of recognize what's going on in a different way within our cultural context, but see and know that what they do in ministry is incredibly important and incredibly beautiful. And really with all the headaches and right now, all the vocational hazards, it is still really worth seeking. And it is still really worth, um, really worth a human life and, um, and is beautiful. The book series is The Congregation in Secular Age, The Pastor in the Secular Age, and Faith Formation in the Secular Age. Our guest is Andrew Root. You can stay connected by visiting his website, andrewroot.org. 
Andrew, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. And um, thank you for continuing to chart a way forward theologically for those of us that are hopeful of a new and exciting future for, for the church ahead. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the fun conversation. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.